Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad that you're here. I would like to offer a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. We're very glad that you are here, and if you have questions or comments about this faith or this congregation, please do see the knowledgeable and friendly people at the membership table and visitor table out there in the foyer, and they'll be happy to help you. Please join me in our chalice lighting words. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. We sit in this room side by side, and we are naming ourselves as Unitarian Universalists, and that holds us together. And we have roots that go into Christianity and Judaism, into Hinduism, Buddhism, into uh, uh, humanism, into um, earth-based religions. We have roots and practices from all of these different areas. And so there are many things that hold us together and keep us going in the same direction with all of our variety. And one of those things for this particular congregation is our mission. We say it together every Sunday, and we wrote it on the wall. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now, by Clifford Martin Reed. You are the eternal, the timeless. You would have us dance and sing in celebration of the present moment. But we can't see your smile or hear your song. But how will we find you if we don't look where you are? We search the past through its dusty libraries, its darkened ruins, its blood-soaked battlefields. But you are not there. We find only idols and people bowing down to them. Of you there is but a whisper. Why do you seek the living among the dead? We search the future, straining our eyes to find you. But we see nothing, only our own mirages and maybes reflected back on fearful, hopeful faces. And we hear a whisper, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will look after itself. You are now in us, with us. The present is your dwelling place. Call us out from bondage. Touch us with eternity. Free us from the drag of the past, the pull of the future. May we know you, love you, serve you, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but now, in this timeless moment. You're now invited to light candles of joy and sorrow and remembrance. You in House and Hall as well. Uh, all children must be accompanied by an adult. Let us continue our meditation with a Buddhist loving-kindness prayer, or metta-meditation. We say this three times. The first time, we say this for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. 
The second time we say this for somebody we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time through is a spiritual exercise to change only ourselves. We say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. If you want to use that as a spiritual practice, you're welcome to. You're recommended to say it for yourself for six months just to give you a good foundation. Then start on people you love. Then spend another six months saying it for people about whom you are indifferent. So just somebody on the street, in the store. And then after all of that, you take on saying it for people against whom you have a resentment. But by that time, your soul will be so shiny and healthy and whole You will probably not have any resentments. So you know I'm in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments because this is what I studied in seminary. I studied the Bible. I'm really good at it. I don't get to talk about it that much with Unitarian Universalists because it takes a, a foundation of trust for the minister to be able to Bible preach in a Unitarian Universalist church uh, while people are uh, kind of not trusting of what might happen during such a sermon. So um, I, I appreciate your being here this morning, the few, the proud, the brave. <laughs> so if you were here last month, you might remember the story about Moses going up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, getting the tablets, coming back down, and he saw that, that his brother Aaron had been talked into making the people a golden calf to worship. Uh, The bull was worshipped in many of the cultures around Egypt where they had been for the last 400 years and in Egypt too. And so they naturally felt kind of comfortable with a bull image. And some people say the bull was even the image for for El, El Shaddai, the god that they worshipped. So um, they had given him their bracelets and their earrings and uh, he'd melted them down and made a calf that they could touch and love and, you know, worship and dance around and have some good debauchery like they used to have back in the old country. And Moses got there, saw them doing this, and he was so angry that he smashed the tablets and had 6,000 people killed and ground up the tablets and put it in the drinking water and made them drink it. Um, They don't really tell this story in Sunday school. Then he went back up the mountain and got some more tablets. And it's really not a surprise that that the ten he brought down the second time started with, I am the Lord your God, and you're not going to have any other gods before me. And the second one was, and you're not going to make any images of anything that is in the heavens or under the sea or on the earth, and no images, and especially no, it doesn't say especially no golden calves, but um, you don't worship those things and because I'm a jealous God. 
the Muslims take this commandment so seriously that they do not allow any graven images, which is the the scripture's language in English, any graven images of anything in their art or architecture. So Muslim art has developed into this gorgeous patterned art where abstract shapes are repeated over and over again or just made in beautiful colors. But you will not find in a real um, rug that was made by uh, Muslims or in any kind of Muslim architecture, you will not find pictures of plants or animals or people because of this commandment. The Jews took this commandment um, to mean that you, that you don't, well, part, this is part of the reason why the Jews don't even say the name of God. The name of God is written on the page, but you read it, the Lord. You just say the Lord. And sometimes the Hasidic Jews uh, will not even write the word God. They write G-D. Because once you name something, you have exerted control over it. Um, so, you do not name God. Now, Christians have had different ways that they responded to this commandment. In the 8th century, the Christian church split um, over how much representation of Jesus, Mary, and the saints there could be. Um, the Greek Orthodox Church limited it to two dimensions. So you see all those beautiful Orthodox icons in the churches. You see beautiful screens with representations of Mary and Jesus and the disciples. And even there's a, a couple of pictures of God. Um, that's kind of this white guy with uh, shiny stuff coming out. And um, you're really not supposed to do that. But anyway... Some people do. And the Roman Catholics on the other side, you remember the, the, the two of them split the um, Roman and the Orthodox Church over other stuff. But the, cat, the Roman Catholic Church uh, made it okay to make three-dimensional statues. So in a lot of um, Catholic churches, you're going to see statues of the Virgin of Guadalupe. You're going to see statues of Mary. You're going to see statues of Mary holding Jesus. Three dimensions is okay in the Roman Catholic Church. Part of what happens when religious factions fight, this is not just Christianity, this is everybody, is that you want to just absolutely smash the other people to pieces. And um, there were people who would go into Orthodox churches and smash the icons. And there were people who would go into the Roman Catholic churches and smash the statues. And these people are called iconoclasts because they break the icons. So iconoclast is a word we use a lot for people who smash the things that other people feel are holy. When the Protestants came, they were protesting. They're called Protestants because they were protesting. They were um, protesting images in church. They said you shouldn't have any. So most Protestant churches are very plain. You'll go into a Protestant church. Many don't even have stained glass windows. The, uh, the most um, serious about the iconoclast 
Ness, they don't even have stained glass windows. And some Protestant churches were kind of talked into stained glass windows because the people want something beautiful to look at, and it's uh, almost always not the minister. And so they need um, images to hold their attention and, and make lift their spirits. And so many Protestant churches have stained glass windows, even though according to the early Protestants, they're not supposed to. There was a reformer named Zwingli, who took out his church's pipe organ because people were enjoying it too much. And they were saying things like, oh, the music really lifts me, and the music comforts me, and the music is so beautiful. And he felt that these were uh, things that should only be said about God. And he obviously felt God was not in the organ, so he had it taken out because it was becoming an idol. Um, when I talked about the first commandment, I talked about Emerson who, who said, a person will worship something. You'll worship something, and what you are worshiping, you are becoming. And so most Protestant sermons about this commandment talk about how you have to be sure that what you're worshiping is worth worshiping. So if you're expecting something wonderful to happen to you because of a new phone or a new car or a new house or a new job, that these are empty. Um, I do think sometimes that uh, people can invest objects with a lot of power to heal and comfort just because they love these objects. And I think that's what happens to statues in the Roman Catholic Church People love them, and and in the Hindu um, faith too, and in the Buddhist faith, where people come and and in front of a statue of Buddha, they make their prayers, they say the deep secrets of their heart, and this invests the statue with power, at least for that person that you love it. You've seen little kids who invest this kind of power in their stuffed animals so that an older sister can just torment a younger sister by dangling a stuffed animal by its ear and saying, I'm going to throw this in the fire. You could really um, create a nervous breakdown that way, or a temporary one, hopefully. And um, so we can, we can invest objects with a tremendous amount of power and what the Jungian um, excuse me, psychologists call mana, or the anthropologists call mana, which is the sacred energy. But what the Protestants were saying is that nothing can have sacred energy except for God. And I think, I think that they're both right. Because I think what this commandment says, I'm not going to preach about idolatry and putting things above God, because that's not the situation we're in. And anyway, I talked about that last month. So I want to talk about images of God and why they might outlaw images of God. And I think the reason that they outlawed people making images was that as soon as you name something or as soon as you think you understand something, you're already in trouble. You're already wrong, especially something that has a lot of mystery in it. So if you feel like, for example, I think when... Um, the politicians say, God doesn't like this or that, and so we should outlaw it. They're creating an idol, an image, 
a graven image of God because they're saying this is what God is like and this is what God likes and this is what God doesn't like. And I think that what this commandment might be saying, at least in my view, is that once you feel like you've understood what God wants or doesn't want, you're already wrong. There can be no images of God. That's what makes the most sense to me. Pope John the Twenty-Third was known to say that the first syllable anyone will utter when they get to heaven is, oh. The Chinese author Lao Tse begins his book with the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. So as soon as you name something, you're pretending that it's separate. You're pretending that it's not part of the one. You're already immediately then dealing with a mistaken view of reality. And yet, in order to talk about things, we have to name them. I have to say, this is a bowl, and I have to say, this is a bell. Otherwise, we won't be able to talk about them. And if I were to just exist eternally in the one Um, I don't even know what that would be like. It'd probably be quieter. But we have to understand, I think, I think what this commandment is saying to us is that we have to understand as soon as we're starting to talk about something or as soon as we think we understand someone or as soon as we say, I can make a biosphere that works just like the earth, uh, we're already wrong. As soon as we say, I have a systematic theology that explains everything. I have a systematic anything that explains everything. Wrong, 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 wrong. Not to say you shouldn't try. It's fun. Why not? And yet it's good always to keep in mind that as soon as you have an image of something, you're about to be wrong. Does that make sense? I think that's what this commandment might be saying. And so Especially, we have to be careful when we're making image of the holiest things. And then as soon as I say that, the holiest things, I think, well, what are the holiest things? Don't I believe everything is holy? Don't we, in Unitarian Universalism, teach that everything is holy? So how can one thing be holier than another thing? What isn't holy? Do I think God is in everything or not? Ugh. Are only nice things holy? Do you have a divided universe where God is in all the nice things, but not in the nasty things? Can I say God is in the destructive things? Is God in the cancer cell? Because if you're going to say, oh, I believe God is in everything, you have to believe that God is in the cancer cell because that's part of everything. See what I'm saying? You can't just say, oh, as I've heard many people say, um, All I have to do is watch the dolphins at sunset, and I believe in God. And I think, why? Because it's beautiful, yeah. But you... If you're going to believe in God by watching nature, then you've got to believe in God in the hospital, too, where you're watching people um, wither away. Because that's God too. And do you have a God who has both creation and destruction in the divine? Is destruction also divine? Can destruction be loving 
or is there this giant war between good and evil and the destruction is always evil and the, and the creation is always good? And um, these are things that theologians have been talking about and having great fun with forever. Or you could just be relaxed and take the easy way out, seems to me, and say, uh, oh, there's no God and things just happen. Like, okay, that's fine. But you're probably wrong too. That's not a way to be right. So I think the graven images commandment is asking of the human spirit not to get any object mixed up with the one and not to imagine that anything is apart from the one. There's a wonderful song that I wish I had time to play for you. Um, by Billy Jonas called God is In, and I'm just going to tell you some of the lyrics because we're already out of time. Um, God is in the child's eyes, see the wide, wondrous wise. God is in the rain and snow, in each snowflake, this we know. God is in the trees and air, the rocks and birds. It's kind of normal here for the first verse. Um, Then he goes... um, God is into body piercing, and then I can't even read the rest of the things. God is in your new tattoo, in your scars and birthmarks, too. God is in your brand new nose, your control top pantyhose. God is in the latest fad, except for bungee jumping. That's dangerous and bad. God is in your cellular phone. God will not leave you alone. God is in the internet, wondering why you're not there yet. God is in Vogue and Spin and Rolling Stone, because God is in. God is in. God is in. God is in the Christian house, bread and wine and holy cross. God is in the Jewish home, shalom, chavarim, shalom. God is in the Muslim, Allahu Akbar, salam. God is in the Hindu way, jai, bhagwan, namaste. God is in the dancing pagans in each drop of perspiration. Um, God is in the Wiccan coven, 12 plus 1, a perfect dozen. God is in the Druid song, that's why they go on so long. God is in the Buddhist chair saying, don't just do something, sit there. God is in the atheist saying, yeah, I don't exist. God is in your ATM counting bills and stacking them. God is in your college fund laughing because it's gone, gone, gone. (laughs) The lovely song, check it out online. Is God in everything? Is God in some things and not in other things? Is there a God at all? We are people who can ask all those questions and have fun conversations trying to figure it out because we're wrong and that's kind of relaxing. Will you please uh, say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.